What if you met a person sometime who looked to you to be incredibly happy and peaceful and at ease and fearless, just radiating all of those characteristics? And what if you remarked on that to that person and said, I noticed that, are you really that? And they said, yes, I really, really am. (laughs) And you said, could you teach me that? And they said, yes, I really, really could. You would probably say, teach it to me. And then what if they said, I'll tell you the way. There is a really direct way, friends, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destroying of pain and grief, and for reaching the right path, for the realization of peace. Once upon a time, there was a person who said that, and he was a Buddha, and he told it to people that he met and people that he taught, and they practiced that way, and many people woke up and discovered their innate freedom. The practice that we practice here together, this Vipassana practice, is the very practice that he taught when he said those words. When he said, this is the direct way, this is the sole way, friends, to achieve that peace. What he taught in that very sermon was the very practice that we've been doing here these 10 days together. He said, these are the four foundations of mindfulness. And that's what we've been practicing. And that's what I'd like to talk about. Last night when Joseph spoke, he really so clearly put out the necessity of seeing clearly as a prerequisite for freedom, as freedom itself. That freedom depends on seeing clearly. Vipassana, the word vipassana means seeing clearly. That's what it means seeing clearly the temporal nature of experience, how it comes and goes, its insubstantiality, its actual emptiness, ungraspability, seeing how suffering is the seemingly continuous arising of craving for what's essentially ungraspable, like trying to catch at whiffs of smoke or phantoms. When we really understand that, then we stop struggling. We stop trying to cling, clinging being suffering, and we stay awake. We stay awake without struggle. In a sense, we come home to ourselves, to here and now, which is the only thing that ever is, and actually discover that there was no one who ever left and wasn't here. It makes so much sense when you hear this truth put out. When we listen, when I listen, it makes so much sense. How come we forget? How come we fall into wrong view and suffer again and cling again? Just this one more thing. If I just get this one more thing that I want, then I'll be happy and then I'll quit grasping and then I'll rest 
or I'll just get rid of this one last thing. There's just one thing I have to get rid of. The one thing stands between me and total happiness. If I get rid of that, then I'll be able to rest in happiness. Somehow, amazingly, a figure-ground reversal happens. And instead of seeing our experience as a display of light and shadow, we take it as real stuff happening to a real me. And then we struggle with it. And the struggle itself is what's suffering in the mind. And the struggle itself clouds the mind. We become more and more deluded and more and more trapped in struggle. So apparently, even though it sounds right, sounds right enough, somehow we need to practice again and again and again so that we see it clearly and we don't lose that understanding. Actually, in the Buddha's time when he taught, there were some people that didn't need to practice. He just told it to them and they got it right away. I love those stories. Those are my most inspirational stories. When I sit down to listen to a Dharma talk, I think to myself, there is a precedent for waking up just on hearing the truth. And that being so, it might happen to me now. It really gives me a tremendous hit when I think about that. I have various stories that give me a tremendous inspiration in my practice, there being a precedent for it. For those people who don't just wake up when they hear the truth, totally, here's the practice that the Buddha taught. It's said, actually, that after his enlightenment, when he considered going out and teaching and thought about going out and teaching, he was really quite, um, no, really quite hesitant a little bit, thinking about the vast amount of suffering and the vast amount of ignorance. And uh, in, in one particular story, Brahma appears to him as part of the Hindu cosmology and says, you really need to go out and teach for the benefit of those with little dust, those with little dust in their eyes, those who are almost ready to see. And for the benefit of those people with little dust, who are ready just with a kind of blowing away or wiping away of the dust. So we could think of ourselves as having gotten dust in our eyes once again and kind of having to rub our eyes or look a little bit more closely through the dust. And then perhaps we'll see once again. And maybe this will be the time that we see that really turns us around and that we don't forget what we see. So I thought what we might do is that we might do a kind of experiential exercise. What we've done all week, you remember, is we started with the breath as a way of centering the attention and body sensations and mind states and thoughts and sounds. And we included the whole range of our experience. The four foundations of mindfulness are four categories of ways of Um, cataloging our experience. Our experience is actually all of one piece. It's really seamless experience. So that, in a way, it's an heuristic device just to divide up our experience, essentially, of one piece into four different ways. 
But maybe this is what the Buddha figured out needed to happen for those people who didn't see immediately and all in one piece. Maybe this is a course in remedial seeing. And say, we don't see it straight off. We'll break it down into four different segments. And we'll do the part of body sensations and mind states. We'll do contents of mind or um, combinations of truths in the mind, domain of what's true. And we'll do as well the domain of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, which we haven't spent a great deal of time doing in our practice together, but which is really vital to understanding clinging and aversion, grasping and pushing away. So I thought I could just talk about them in a a kind of an academic way, or I thought we might do it. We might pretend that you're hearing these instructions for the first time, and I'll use some of the exact words that the Buddha taught when he taught. So you can imagine these are those same very words falling on your ears. This might be the time. So sit in a way that's relatively comfortable and relatively alert for you. This will be the first time you can say to yourself that I'm hearing these words. I'm hearing these words now with beginner's mind. Now take a deep breath in and out, relax. This is the direct way, friends for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destroying of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the realization of peace, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Sit in a comfortable way. Keep your body erect. Keep your mindfulness alert. Being mindful... Breathe in and breathe out. As you breathe a long breath in, notice I'm breathing a long breath in. As you breathe a long breath out, notice I'm breathing a long breath out. When you breathe a short breath in, notice I'm breathing a short breath out. Each breath arises and passes away with its own characteristic. You can say to yourself the characteristics of that breath. This is a long breath or this is a short breath. As you continue feeling the breath as it arises and passes away, feel all of your body posture. Allow your body to present itself to you. 
dwell in feeling the body internally or externally or both internally and externally. Notice how body sensations arise and are present and pass away. Resting all of the attention and sensations of the body, dwell in contemplation of sensations of the body. Sensations of the body arise and pass away, and the breath arises and passes away, each breath with its own characteristic. And as you practice, Your attention can dwell in contemplation of feelings. One realizes as one sits, either this is a pleasant feeling, or this is an unpleasant feeling, or this is a neutral feeling. So as you sit, dwell in the awareness a feeling. Can notice for yourself, I am dwelling in a pleasant feeling, I am dwelling in an unpleasant feeling, I am dwelling in a neutral feeling. And as you continue to sit, awareness can dwell in contemplation of a state of the mind. Mind full of thoughts, mind empty of thoughts, mind of clarity, mind with obscurations, 
mind at ease, mind contracted, the state of the mind. As the attention dwells in contemplation of states of mind, they change. Resting the attention fully in the state of the mind, dwelling in contemplation of state of mind. Dwelling in contemplation of states of mind is the third foundation of mindfulness. The fourth domain of mindfulness is the domain of contemplation of mind objects, domain of the Dharma, domain of what's true. So as one sits, one becomes aware if they are present, of any of the hindrance mind states. When they are present, one becomes aware of mind filled with lust, or mind filled with anger, mind characterized by torpor, mind of restlessness, mind of doubt, When the hindrance mind states are not present, often factors of enlightenment are present. So that one recognizes mind filled with energy or mind filled with rapture. Mind interested and investigating mind resting in tranquility, mind focused in concentration, mind spacious in equanimity. And as one sits, contemplating all the domains of mindfulness, domain of physical sensations, domain of the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, domain of mind states, domain of the Dharma, how things are. In all cases, possibility that one opens to the awareness of the three characteristics or marks of experience with physical sensations, with mind sensations, with feelings. 
they arise and pass away, they have the characteristic of impermanence. They arise and pass away. They're insubstantial. They're empty. They rise and pass away. <coughs> and so grasping and clinging brings suffering. Grasping and clinging is suffering. <coughs> and so the domain, this domain also includes awareness of the Four Noble Truths. Awareness of the truth of suffering and awareness of the cause of suffering and in moments when the mind is empty of clinging and alert awareness of the third noble truth of the possibility of the end of suffering This teaching ends with the encouragement that with diligent practice in time, awareness clarifies and waking up is possible. Is possible in seven years or seven months or seven weeks or seven days. Here and now, waking up is possible. And the teaching ends with the same words with which it begins. This is the way, friends, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destroying of pain and grief, for reaching the right path, for the realization of peace, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And it's said that when the Buddha spoke these words, those that heard him welcomed the words with gladdened hearts. It's so inspiring for me to think that we are doing the very same practice that the Buddha taught as the way for waking up 2,500 years ago. It's the same practice. The instructions that we had this week are exactly the same. Pay attention to sensations of the body as they come and go. Pay attention to mind states as they change. Pay attention to understandings as they arise and pass away. Pay attention very particularly to feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, because it's in each moment of experience, 
each moment of experience being accompanied, arising with the characteristic of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that clinging, grasping, and aversion um, comes into play. In moments of pleasant experience, the mind reaches out for more. In moments of unpleasant experience, the mind pushes away. The pulling and pushing away, which is suffering in the mind. In moments of neutral experience, the mind falls asleep. And the enlightened mind is that that's free of greed and hatred and delusion. It's the mind that doesn't cling and stays awake right here now. Those same awarenesses of temporality, of impermanence, of emptiness, of the cause and the end of suffering, can happen on that microscopic level of watching moment to moment each discrete experience of awareness arise, can also and does also happen in every aspect of our experience can happen in a very macroscopic way. It doesn't have to happen on a zafu with depth samadhi. It can happen with alert perception of the world and what's happening. Everything is coming and going. I used to do a lot of my practice in uh, Southern California in Yucca Valley and just like any place else in the world, you see the sunset, sunrise and the sunset, and you see it here too. But I think because the desert stretched out so flat, and I think also because I was practicing, was so involved, of, so attuned to the waxing and waning of the moon, because I'd normally be there 20 days, and the rising and setting of the sun. And in the beginning of 20 days, 20 days loomed out ahead of me like an endless period of time. And then the sun would rise and it would set, and it would rise and it would set, and it would rise and it would set, and all of a sudden, 20 days had passed by. In a minute, it seemed as if. There were times, I think, when my practice was perhaps in some kind of a struggle, and also uh, really looking in a very uh, uh, focused way on impermanence and the passing away of days and days, days of that retreat as days of our lives, that I'd become quite focused on the just impermanent nature of experience going round and round and round, and maybe um, with much less meaning than we normally impute to it. I had an interesting experience that would happen to me over and over and over again. There'd be a time in the middle of practice, somewhere in the middle, eighth day, fourteenth day, all of a sudden I'd be walking back and forth somewhere. And somewhere from the depths of the memory bank, would come the words, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day. The Macbeth people will know where this comes from. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools away to dusty death. 
the line that really got me was, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And I do it over and over and over again. Actually, I'd often work myself up into quite a bad mood over that. (laughs) But I think my understanding was not very balanced because it's actually a very freeing awareness. It sounds grim, but it's actually quite freeing. It's not as serious as we take it to be. It really is a display of light and shadow. We take it so seriously and we take it so personally. I really think Shakespeare had it figured out. I say all these things a little bit cautiously because often people feel in a, in a place where it's hard to hear that one's life is one life in a, in a huge cosmic changing scene. Somebody told me recently about an actually a fairly young person who died and knew that they were dying, they were dying over some time, who was quite calm in approaching his death. And he said, so many people have done this before. That's really reassuring. So many people have done this before. Once upon a time, oh, 20 years ago or so, I studied a form of intensive journal keeping where you kept a journal in a certain way. It's kind of a psychological tool for exploring your life. And one of the basic tools of that was to make a list of um, the turning points of your life so that you were to uh, put yourself in a kind of uh, contemplative, intuitive mood. The instruction was don't think about it, don't plan it, don't figure it out, let it just arise sort of in an organic way from your intuitive understanding. And to start with the sentence, um, I was born on such and such a day. Everybody has the same first sentence because we were all born. I was born on such and such a day. And then let it unfold, just write sentence after sentence, and that your intuitive unconscious will tell you what were really the significant points in your life. And that you should somehow come up in the last sentence to be what's happening with you now. And they said, um, but don't do it in more than 12 sentences. So I was really dismayed. I felt trivialized my whole important, interesting life to do in 12 sentences. So I did it in eight sentences. (laughs) And I learned something from that. When my father was dying, which is 10 years ago, this year, uh, he knew that he was dying, and uh, we talked about it a lot beforehand. We had a really close and good relationship, and in his last days, he was in and out of a coma. And uh, he'd fall asleep for a while, and then he'd get up a little bit and fall back to sleep. And then sometimes he'd be really quite not there for a while, And then all of a sudden his breathing would get very peculiar. And I thought, okay, now he's dying. And uh, I was really happy for him to pass because he had quite a debilitating illness and it was hard for him to be alive anymore. 
So I would get up and I'd be standing right there and I'd say all the right things about let go of this body and you don't need it anymore and now's your chance and go to the light and giving him all the instructions that I thought I had to give him to get him off safely. And all the while his breathing in a bad way. And then all of a sudden after I did this whole thing, his breathing would get regular again and a few more hours would go by and then he'd do it again and I'd say, this is your chance, leave this body, you don't need it, all the things he's supposed to say. And I'd go through that ritual a few times and each time he'd start breathing again and be back for a few hours. And then one time he started to do that funny breathing and I started in my thing and he opened his eyes and he looked at me and he said, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's been a really important teaching for me, and I can't. When I make my list of thanking my teachers, he's really right up there with that. It was really his parting teaching. It's a great teaching. It's not that big of a deal. If we could just sit back and let our experience arise and pass away and arise and pass away, like the great and awesome cosmic display it is, it's a possibility that we could even really enjoy it, impermanent as it is. Even if it's just a dance of shadows signifying nothing, we could really enjoy it. It's a far-out dance. It's an amazing movie. You think about it as an amazing movie, you think Central Casting has done such an amazing job. Look at all the people that it sent down to be in my life. And look at the storyline. We think we're making up the plot as we go along, but who knows? You know, another thing about these instructions when we practice, they seem so complicated. Do this, do that, pay attention to physical sensations, pay attention to feeling, pay attention to mind states, pay attention to the contents of mind, pay attention to the configurations of the five hindrances, and the Four Noble Truths, and the Three Marks, and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, it gets to seem like a really Herculean task. Those are all the instructions. Uh, My friend Ajahn Amaro, who teaches mostly in England, but comes to California once a year to teach for some months, teaches in this tradition, has a wonderful way of giving the instructions. This may not be verbatim what Ajahn Amaro says, but it's very close. He says something like, sit down, allow the body to relax into the natural ease and peace that's the natural state of the body. And allow the mind to relax into the natural ease and peace that's the natural state of the mind. Then just stay there. Just be attentive to anything that arises to disturb that natural peace and ease of mind. It's really a little bit of a figure ground reversal. Remember last night when Joseph said, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Just sit there. If we sit and we're awake and just sit with awake, things come and go. Thoughts come and go, breath comes and goes, sensations of the body comes and goes, everything comes and goes. Even difficult mind states, obscurities, they come and they go and they come and they go. 
And we just sit with the natural peace that's the birthright, really, of mind. I think to myself, sometimes we should make a slogan that says, don't disturb the peace. Or, uh, you know, people sometimes get arrested for disturbing the peace. Used to be, there's, a, there's an ordinance in cities about disturbing the peace. Don't disturb the peace. We could make one of those round circles with a line through it, you know, that, you know, don't do, no parking or no trespasses. We make a circle like that with a line that says, no disturbing the peace. Because really, once we know that it isn't some miraculous state to be achieved at some future time and to be held on to at all costs, but really the natural state of the mind, then we just don't disturb it. Then the instructions are really easy. One of the things that happens, I think, is that we become aware of the possibility of making that choice, of not disturbing the peace. Sometimes when you think about... uh, being alert to grasping and clinging, it seems so complicated. Be mindful in every moment. Watch the intention of the heart. Actually, it's not that complicated because actually the path of least resistance. It's actually the path of peace. Grasping and aversion, that's complicated. Attention to intention of the heart so that one preserves the peace is really the straightest way the direct way. It's the easiest way. It's the path of least resistance. Everything else is struggle. It requires staying awake, knowing what's going on, and forgiving it. Forgiving is a very important word. We use it a lot in metta practice in talking about forgiving people, forgiving people who have hurt us. And it becomes clear in metta practice that peace of mind, peace of heart is not possible unless we forgive. Sometimes people have such a hard time with that. How can I forgive so-and-so? They hurt me so much. I'll never forgive them. And it's such an, again, juxtaposition of figure and ground because when we make a move like that, we are, in fact, really barring ourselves from the possibility of experiencing peace. When we forgive people, we really allow ourselves peace. It's the price we pay, in a certain sense, for peacefulness, for freedom. And the same is true as it is that we need to forgive people, that we need to forgive our experience, we need to forgive our life. And that really makes it possible for us to be with all moments of experience, pleasant and unpleasant, worrisome and not worrisome, desirable and not desirable, bidden and unbidden, with equanimity, with openness, with peace. We have to forgive it. It's amazing to think of the possibilities, that the, the, the um, challenges to forgiveness. Somebody told me a story recently uh, that I thought was such a wonderful story about forgiveness and its relationship to freedom. And I said, can I tell that story? And they said, yes. So here's the story. The person who told me the story does work with a, uh, for a social action group in Central America and uh, was visiting El Salvador with a, uh, 
uh, delegation of people sometime after the um, murder of the six Jesuit priests and uh, visited, were taken by someone to the very building, the very place where that killing of the priests took place. Um, so convent or a monastery, I guess, dwelling place of the six Jesuit priests. And you probably remember that at that time there were two housekeepers in the house of the Jesuits who were working for them as housekeepers who were also um, killed summarily because when the priests were killed they were witnesses to it and uh, in an attempt to cover up all traces of witness they killed these two women. The women were Selena and Elba Ramos, a mother and her daughter. This delegation of people, when they were visiting this place sometime afterwards, noticed that there was a man, an older man, gardening as they came through and just patiently gardening in this place where this terrible, terrible thing had happened. Patiently gardening, restoring the garden, planting seeds. When they asked who he was, it turned out that he was Juan Ramos. He was the husband and father of the two women who were killed. And uh, the person who told me the story, being Spanish-speaking, was asked by someone else in his group to convey the sentiments of that group to Juan Ramos, who, uh, the person who told me the story, said had such a face that radiated peace and ease in the midst of such incredible sorrow and grief and loss. Such intolerable, for most people, grief and loss. And there he was in the very place of this terrible act, gardening in the garden and planting seeds and being peaceful. It was an incredibly moving story to me. There are such challenges to peace. And it's amazing when people can open to the challenges of their life and forgive their life. It's not to achieve peace, it's to remain peaceful because that's the natural state. It's what we come with. What we find out is our natural state when we practice. We come home to ourselves. I thought that I, I was considering how to end this talk and uh, I had two possible ends. So I tried them both out as I sat today. I decided I'd tell them to you both. One of them is more poetic. I'll do that one first. And I'll do it because it came to mind when Joseph spoke last night and he ended up with that wonderful Eliot quote. Four Quartets is really a wonderful, wonderful poem with tremendous, tremendous wisdom in it. So I wanted to say the lines that have to do with coming home to waking up. Waking up. And the lines are, we shall not cease 
in all of our exploring. And the end of all our explorations will be to find that we arrive at the place that we first started and see it for the first time. It's a wonderful image of coming home. Less poetic and somewhat more fanciful, but I've been thinking about it. Someone reminded me of this in an interview sometime earlier this week. Do you remember The Wizard of Oz? Dorothy falls asleep. When she falls asleep, she dreams. And she dreams about all kinds of things, some of them quite terrifying. Flying monkeys, wicked witches, munchkins, being lost, being trapped in a strange land, being unable to come home. And in the dream, she and all of her companions, you know the story, spend the whole book trying to get back home, going to see the wizard to get back home. And then at the end, they find to their dismay that the wizard isn't a wizard at all. It has no magic for them to get back home. And at the very end, uh, Gilda, who's a good witch, says to Dorothy, you could have gone home any time you wanted. You're wearing the magic shoes, and all you have to do is click your heels together three times and say, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. So I thought to myself, I wonder what happens if I sit on my zafu and I say to myself, there's no place like home. So I tried it out this afternoon. I tell you this at the risk of this being tremendous heresy. It's not a normal mantra or wisdom saying. However, I have tried it out. I have field tested it. And it occurred to me as I was doing it for a while that there's no place like home at least in my, experience, my trial experience, it's a way of reconnecting with that piece of being right here now in an undisturbed, uncomplicated way, from which place the next appropriate thing, the next saying that comes to mind is, may all beings be happy. It's actually the reflection of the sense of happiness that arises as one experiences oneself to be home. It's when one experiences oneself to be home and awake and peaceful that one really is able to make that hope for all beings. So I really think that there's no place like home is just the same as may all beings be happy. So as our second kind of exploration experiential event for tonight, I thought that we would end with just a few minutes of sitting. You might try There's No Place Like Home. You might try May All Beings Be Happy. Could field test the magic mantra. Do it on the breath. Breath in and breath out. Remind yourself as you start that the natural state of the mind is at ease. So we're returning home to the state of peace or ease, 
Dorothy went home to Kansas. We're going home to peace. So what you need to do is to say your magic mantra three times and let the mind rest in its natural state of peace. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein on February 18, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.